Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. This is Talk of the Devils, the Athletics podcast dedicated to Manchester United and we are back after the international break and my goodness, again, <laughs> we've got so much to talk about with Manchester United despite a ball not being kicked. We'll get into all the situation with the potential takeover, if we're even allowed to still call it that, I'm not sure, but we'll get into the details on that. We'll preview the game against Sheffield United this weekend as well. Manchester United's women are out of the Champions League in a little bit of controversy, so we'll reflect on that. And we'll also talk about the Reds away on international duty. But first of all, Laurie Whitwell and Andy Mitten are with us. We need to say a huge thank you to everyone who came out to our shows in Belfast and Dublin this week. It was absolutely incredible, Laurie, wasn't it? Yeah, a couple of wild atmospheres, um, particularly the one in Dublin when... (laughs) (laughs) I've never been heckled so much. (laughs) It was like heckled, but it was also... They just were really eager to get involved. But I did... Uh, I think that Carl absolutely nailed it when he just shouted out, one heckle at a time, please. <laughs> <laughs> Carl's not even back yet, is he? He's still He's over loving there it so much he, he stayed to, over there, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say he had to miss his girlfriend's birthday uh, to do the live show in Dublin and he's making it up to her as we speak, I think. But Andy, absolutely fantastic. I've never had so many pints of Guinness uh, and still expected to be able to perform on a stage. Not everyone did that though, did they? It was fantastic. You, you're loading me with questions here like you did on the stage in uh, in Dublin. Uh, I struggled with my Guinness in Dublin. I'll tell you why, I was exhausted. I, was, I got up at three o'clock in the morning on Monday and it's tiring. I'm not 21 anymore, I'm 22. And um, <laughs> adrenaline carries you through. I had a good few pints of Guinness in Belfast, got to Dublin and I just slumped. I was just exhausted and we did the show and I had to leave very, very quickly at the end of the show. <laughs> we can say this I now. was like, we're, staying, we're, doing a little, we're doing a little picture, are we, Andy? No, he's gone. He's off. He's <laughs> he gone. Needed, so He needed to sort himself out. I had this out. beautiful looking pint of Guinness in front of me on the stage and I couldn't touch it because I was about to vomit. Three times... I felt <laughs> I felt there? like I was going to vomit, right? And by the end of it, I knew that Laurie's last story, which is a belter, I'm thinking, right, we're down to the last two minutes of this. We're down to the last 90 seconds of this. We're down to the last minute. There's about 45 seconds of this to go. Thank you, everybody, for coming. I ran off. I ran straight <laughs> towards the toilet, opened the door, and was doing a mid-air vomit. And, wow. I mean... <laughs> I'm being honest. This is the first time we've heard well, this. Well, it's the truth. He couldn't speak after the show. That's why it's the first time we've heard it. You've got a 10K coming up though, haven't you, Andy? Was that a bit of training for it? It's a bit of sprint training. I've got a 10K on Sunday. There were um, there were witnesses to my projectile vomiting and I, wow. I cleaned myself up quickly in the area around the toilet and went back outside and spoke to some of the Reds who turned up in, in Dublin. And I loved yeah, a couple of days there. It was, the pods were great and I think you get something in real real life when you're speaking to people, the humour, 
you know, I can look at like your socks, for example, which I can't naturally do when we're speaking <laughs> on the podcast. And yeah, thanks, thanks to everyone for coming to Belfast and to Dublin. I'd love it if we can go back again and maybe go to some other cities in Ireland too. Can I just quickly explain what Andy did with the Guinness in the day in Dublin? You know, he obviously smashed it in Belfast and, and, and done it properly, but he ordered half a pint of Guinness uh, in Dublin for lunch and then he drank half of it. So he didn't even make his full way through. Um, so we're obviously now calling that, you know, the Jim Ratcliffe, 25%. <laughs> You've teed it up very nicely, Laurie. Um, let's get into it then. There's a meeting taking place, we understand, later today. We're recording just after 9am on Thursday morning um, when Manchester United's board members will meet to vote on a proposal from Sir Jim Ratcliffe's INEOS group to purchase 25% of Manchester United. That's the situation as we understand it at the moment. Um, how do you see this progressing, Andy? I don't think the progress will be quite as quick as some people seem to think it is. Certainly in the media, I've had editors saying uh, the game against Sheffield United will be Sir Jim Ratcliffe's first game in charge. I'm like, what? Hold your horses. I think this has been protracted throughout and it absolutely seems like we're closer to some kind of resolution. One which is far from ideal, by the way. I wouldn't be stunned if we were still talking about this in weeks and even months. I know that Richard Arnold in his staff meeting, which was quite recent, said these things can take time. So we we might see some progress, uh, but I cannot say that this time tomorrow, Sir Jim Ratcliffe stroke Ineos will hold 25% of my part of Guinness. <laughs> Laurie, in terms of the meeting today, obviously, as we're recording, it's not taking place. By the time this reaches people's ears, it may well have done. But what are we expecting to happen? Well, we're expecting a board meeting to take place. People close to United say that it's been long in the diary, um, which is, you know, fair enough. You've got to take that at face value. I'm always a little bit sceptical of, of stuff like that. You know, you can kind of say that it's been in the diary after the event, after it's all been sort of put together. But listen... After it's in the yeah, diary. exactly. Yeah. So, but clearly this vote on... Uh, Sir Jim Ratcliffe's bid is something that's been talked about, whether they'll actually get to it at this point because the devil is in the detail in terms of there's so many questions, aren't there? In how, you know, does he buy the Class B and Class A shares? That's what we think to make uh, it appealing to the uh, investors over at the New York Stock Exchange. Um, does he? How, how does he get that sporting control? That's the big crucial element to it all. He, he doesn't want to go in there and buy uh, a load of shares of United for £1.3 billion is, is what we're expecting uh, and then not have any say over the running of the club. The, what we're told is that the Glazers are open to that because they feel that yeah, okay, they accept the football side of things hasn't been great under their stewardship, certainly since Alex Ferguson's gone. So does that actually allow them to get more value out of the club if they give it to somebody who they think or he thinks can do a better job of uh, the football side of things? It, it, but it still it strikes as, as a curious dynamic, that doesn't it? Um, how that gets resolved in a, in a contractual, in a legally binding way is is going to be fascinating. It was it did feel like last weekend at, at the point that Sheikh Jassim pulled out because that was that was kind of the starting gun on all this. You know that the, they took the initiative, um, the Qataris, to say we're, we're out here, uh, and there has been so much claim counter claim. Um, you know, there's been reasons why people have put stuff in the public domain um, that might not be totally uh, transparent to begin with. Um, you know, th there's been negotiations and and how do you get 
you know, somebody to accept your bid, you know. So, so you kind of have to take a, a sceptical view of, of a lot of what's been said in this whole process, which is nearly a year long. You know, it was November, wasn't it, when they announced the strategic review with those keywords that it could be a, a full sale, but actually we're getting to this point of maybe it's a piece of the pie for Jim Ratcliffe first, and then he can perhaps expand it into a majority overall. Everyone you speak to that knows Sir Jim Ratcliffe's you know, past business dealings uh, he wants control of what he owns. You know, he, he wants to have full ownership as well so that you don't have to have these investor calls where people can ask you questions. You don't have to necessarily show your full accounts every single year and every single quarter. So it did feel like this was going to be, actually, maybe this has all been agreed already and that's why Sheikh Jassim's pulled out. He realises the writing's on the wall. But I, yeah, as Andy sort of touched on, as the days have gone on, it's become clearer that there's still, you know, a fair bit to sort out. No, nothing's been agreed. I think that's the one of the points here and there's been twice where Ineos have felt they are close to something and that hasn't happened and I've said a couple of times on this podcast I can remember clearly saying it in March that I would expect something to happen in the next couple of weeks and never really happened so I think that Ratcliffe feels well I know not that they're allowed to talk because they've signed NDAs that this is the only deal that they can do. Uh, it's this other status quo with the Glazers staying in charge. And for whatever reason, the Qatar bid, they've decided to pull out. And some people like that and some people dislike that. I've got concerns with with both. And if it looks like it's going to be the Ratcliffe deal, I've got concerns because the Glazers are still there. I don't think they've been good for Manchester United. I don't just suddenly think that giving Ineos stroke Ratcliffe control of the sporting side is going to mean Manchester United are going to start winning games all the time. They've got a pretty patchy record in in sport, even though they put a lot of money into it. I've been to Nice. I've seen their blueprint, which is pretty impressive. The stadium, the city, everything about it, apart from the results. Although this season, they are doing much better. But some of their transfer signings have been worse than Manchester United's in recent years. Let's Let's not beat about the bush here. As Laurie said, Jim Ratcliffe wants full control of Manchester United. He is a man who likes a deal. He is a man who can play the long game. He cannot force the Glazers to do a deal. So what does he do? Does he walk away or does he try and do it, not through a back doorway because he's paying a lot of money, but he wants to be in a position to change Manchester United for the better, not for the worse. If he's doing it for the worse, what's in it for him? He's 70 years old. Is he going to piss off everybody in the city where he grew up? He's not getting any younger. He's going to want a happy ending to all of this, just like Manchester United fans. He's using his own money. And there will be extra to go into the infrastructure. That's my firm understanding of it. So what's the infrastructure? Old Trafford, chiefly. I know some money's been spent on Carrington. Quite interesting. I've seen the um, the new women's and academy block at, at Carrington. It is a decent facility. I go to lots of training grounds around the world. I posted some pictures of that yesterday on Twitter. And I know Twitter's a complete mess. The negative reaction to it. It's like, no, I'm sorry. It's a decent facility. And I think sometimes people get overblown with Old Trafford is is decrepit. It's not. It's still a very good stadium. But it needs significant redevelopment. And if not, a new stadium altogether. And that's a separate issue from that. And Ratcliffe is well aware of these issues and of how important they are to fans he's not going to have a majority of 
of of the shares but he will have power he wants a significant influence he's putting money in and he wants this to be a path to change so let's see what that leads to if we you would have said this to me 12 months ago i would have been more encouraged by that than not but since then we've had the qataris which turned a lot of heads and united fans were completely divided as whether qatar would be a good thing for the club or not and now we've got um ratcliffe so let's see what happens it's interesting actually from the shows that we did uh, and it's obviously only the people who came to the shows but from the people in both Belfast and Dublin it was very mixed about who was you know wanting Sir Jim Radcliffe to take over who was wanting a Sheikh Jassim led investment it, it was just completely split there was there was no unanimous decision either way really on it and I think that is reflective of the wider fan base as well both online and at games there's, there's differences to that in terms of you know w- which is weighted in what direction it feels like people online were more in favor of Qatar and people perhaps in person or behind paywalls like Andy's spoken about athletic subscribers for instance felt that uh, Jim Radcliffe's interest was was more appealing it's a very divisive issue this lorry and already we've had statements from different fans groups we've had statements from even Gary Neville asking very serious questions and questions that are going to need to be clarified before fans know what to think about this. Absolutely, yeah. And even people that have, you know, long um, been associated with Manchester United as a kind of community asset and, and a, a local club for, for the people of the area were attracted by the Qatari takeover because they saw that as the only way that United were going to get a stadium really fit for purpose, uh, training ground, you know, transfers that they could really compete with Manchester City. My personal instinct was always to kind of step back from that just because I think having, and I know, you know, it was a Sheikh Jassim-led bid and, you know, what have you, but I kind of feel like the that element of potential state ownership would change United forever. You know, you, you could never put the genie back in the bottle and I think that that would change things for me as you know, as, as United, someone who grew up as a United fan and, and what the club means, you know, to the wider world and, and you know, you'd, that's what United have at the moment you know City are winning all these titles and you can say well okay it's because of the takeover it's because you are funded by a nation state you know I know that's not that's very simplistic you know it's because they've got good people in good positions as well and they 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 have you know real talent in there but I think that does the Qatari if it had been that way and obviously you can't write them off you know as I said earlier you know there's been different elements of this where it's it's looked like they were going to get the club and um, you know you don't know exactly the reasons for things coming out publicly but uh, it, it does feel that at the moment you know that that would be a, a remote possibility but I would always just have that door slightly ajar but I think that the the Ratcliffe bid as Andy sort of touched on allows a potential end point where you've got a guy who did grow up as a United fan who's clearly been very successful in business and you can you can debate the the merits of those that the business um, businesses that he's grown uh, but that he's he's got the wealth to do it yeah it's not going to be um, spending money with absolute you know free limits uh, but I think he would do he would have care to the to the job you know he, he you know and the people that he appoints you know and it's not been a smooth sailing ride at Nice or, or any you know of his sporting institutions to be fair but I think the way that they've got, gone about it is quite data driven and, and quite you know um, it, it's, it's involved you know he, he he was there in person at Old Trafford and Carrington on these tours you know he clearly cares uh, and that's something you, you can't say for the Glazers so surely that's a better possibility than 
having them just as complete owners, you know, surely having Sir Jim Ratcliffe in some way involved would generate that kind of thing that we've spoken about with Brighton where the, you know you've got an owner that cares and, and an owner that you know, sets standards and, and you know is involved you know I mean Andy touched on the the um, improvements at Carrington for the women's team and I, I agree I think it's a it's a perfectly good building for you know women and academy it's it's been you know developed over the summer you know quite quickly now that they've actually given it the green light I suppose it always just feels though under the glazers that it's piecemeal and it's kind of only reactive because of pressure because you know Casey Stoney perhaps walked out as, as women's manager and said the facilities weren't good enough and then it's kind of gone okay we need to react to this so I, w- I wonder if Sir Jim Ratcliffe coming in would then at least give that kind of some forward momentum he wants sporting control straight away so that that does you know bring uncertainty to some people that are already in positions you know you, you look at um, football director John Murter who appointed by Ed Woodward in the first instance and uh, Richard Arnold as the chief executive Ratcliffe clearly has you know ideas on how he would structure the sporting side of things and, and I think we've touched on in pieces in The Athletic uh, this week some of the names uh, Paul Mitchell's been one that's been mentioned to me who uh, he left Monaco in the in the summer after uh, having a good experience there he's obviously worked in England before um, and, and as Andy said I'm not saying that this is major wave a magic wand and it's all better at United it's not that simple it's a complex beast uh, there's lots of things that can go wrong even if you have the absolute best people involved but that's just something that we're hearing that you know to Jim Ratcliffe feels that you know United on the on the sporting side could be better uh, just quickly Laurie as well before we wrap this up how's this board meeting going to work because we're across time zones we're across countries and what's it going to look like yeah I think it's going to be remote dial in you know the the, the power of uh, zoom or, or any of your uh, video conference call facilities uh, it might actually be teams that they, they use at united uh, anyway uh yeah so you, you need to find out this, <laughs> this sort is of the detail. kind of detail, you can't speculate. The granular detail that we we pride ourselves on uh, at the athletic i mean you've got you know the glazers over in america tampa or washington you've got uh, united staff over in manchester so the people that will be dialing in there's three independent directors uh, there's the chief executive richard arnold there's um the uh, Chief Legal Counsel Patrick Stewart and the Chief Financial Officer Cliff Beatty and then there's the six Glazer siblings. Now, you know, it, it kind of does seem a bit uh, obtuse that you'd say, well, it needs to go to a vote. But the Glazers' own, the voting power that they have in the Class B shares doesn't work in this scenario. This is a board vote. So you've got, you know, six um, Glazer siblings, six uh, non-Glazer siblings. And if there's a tie in terms of what they think, then it goes to the co-chairs who are... Joel Glazer and Avram Glazer so the Glazers ultimately have control yeah like if they're all agreeing on this that, that it gets passed is it an issue though if the board is split and something gets out that you know there wasn't a, a unanimous vote because that's what we're told happened previously with a, a, a former sort of Ratcliffe uh, offer that was discussed at board level um, but anyway so it, it, so if it goes to a vote today or, or at any point that's how it works basically where you've got you know Joel and Avram ultimately if they want something to happen and they've got their siblings on board then it will happen I guess the one question is, what happens if Joel and Avram disagree? Andy, the people in Manchester on this call, are they, are they going to have to go into work for this or are they going to be in the back bedrooms, in their offices? It's bizarre, isn't it? it well, we're doing this now, but you, you sort of think at that level that it'd be different, but I guess it's not. Well, there is a boardroom at Old Trafford, Ian. There's also one in London as well. True. I've been in both of them for various reasons to do interviews. I remember interviewing David Gill in the one at Old Trafford and, and most recently got a, a call... Uh, 24 hours before this Brazilian lad called Casimiro signed saying will you come and interview him because uh, his English wasn't like perfect Mancunian accent so obviously I had to come in and speak to him in (laughs) Spanish so went to Old Trafford on a day of massive protest before the Liverpool game at the start of last season 
and, and yeah. waited in the the boardroom which overlooks the the forecourt at Old Trafford. It's high up in in the east stand and jumped to describe it. Well, it's got a nice big table and lots of chairs around it. And then, uh, yeah, I'm not sure it was um, the table at Factory Records which bankrupted the company, but it was a very nice boardroom and. Casemiro walks in. Hi, son. Nice to see you, mate. Welcome to Manchester, I said in an accent. He went, eh? Dad. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sure this won't be the last time that we talk about... Well, it might be the last time we talk about the Manchester United boardroom table, but it won't be the last time we talk about this takeover situation. There's been lots of great writing on The Athletic about this already. There'll be more, I'm sure, as these meetings take place. So remember, if you want to read that and you're not a subscriber... Go to theathletic.com forward slash Man United pod. There's an offer on at the moment as well. £1 a month or $1 a month for the first 12 months. So sign up. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Well, I mentioned at the top that no balls had been kicked for Manchester United over this international break, but plenty of Manchester United players have kicked balls and one player has been kicked <laughs> by San Marino players. Um, Rasmus Hoyland has been complaining on Instagram uh, about his treatment in their game uh, against the uh, the Minnow Nation, as they always seem to be referred to. Laurie, what's happened with this? Quite tasty treatment, I think he got, really. Uh, I mean, he scored a, a good goal, and, and Denmark kind of toiled, didn't they, to a 2-1 win. Um, so I don't know if that's kind of fueled the feeling around him making this public. But, yeah, Cup came out on Instagram and, and basically said he and, and, and you know professional footballers, I suppose, work every day to be the best version of themselves, and, and he called the behaviour by the San Marino players unacceptable and then he'd also done like a video of himself getting kneed in the back uh, by Alessandro Tossi I want to say look at that Alessandro Tossi uh, I'm glad yeah, you got uh, I'm glad you got the second name there right mate you could have easily <laughs> slipped up there <laughs> wasn't what Hoyland was calling him yeah <laughs> I mean I am watching the clip and it, it means nowhere near the ball. He's just he has just need him in the back, which obviously you know he had that back issue uh, when he joined United. So I suppose maybe that's what has really caused a bit of acute anger for from Hoyland that actually maybe that you know it was something that has been targeted. Um, I mean you know Tossi, uh, he, he's not tossed off uh, Hoyland's complaints. He's responded. Uh, he says uh, that basically uh, this you know he wouldn't have survived as a player. Uh, 20 years ago um, and this is just part of the game you know uh, it's, a, it's a contact sport and, and deal with it basically but I don't know it does it does feel uh, like I don't know it looked like San Marino went a bit too far and I can see why Holland is, is kind of giving them some, some back and Again, it, it kind of means to me he, he, the guy's got personality. The guy is not going to just shirk away from uh, you know having players kind of boot him. Um, and I, d- I don't think it's whiny because I mean that's kind of what the San Marino players are getting at. You know, he's whining, he's complaining. But actually, you know, if he feels a certain way, you know, come out and say it. You can look at it that way, or you can just say you're Manchester United centre forward, Andy. You're going to have to put up with stuff, stuff like this, aren't you? Now, yeah, but if he's being targeted cynically he's, he's allowed to speak out for himself because if someone tackles him and he and he breaks a leg or an ankle then that, that that's dangerous i know san marino 
tiny nation that they are are absolutely desperate for a win but they don't need to push it that far and I quite like um, Hoyland's attitude I think he's got a good buzz around him when you see him on the field he's a confident young man and too many Manchester United players seem to struggle with the pressure of playing for Manchester United and in my opinion from what I've seen so far and heard about him he doesn't he's taken it in his stride which when you consider how young he is and how he's come through pretty small clubs Fair play to him. It seemed like it was a good experience uh, for Manchester United's England players as well, Laurie. Um, Harry Maguire uh, started in the win over Italy, which qualified England for the Euros. Marcus Rashford scored a brilliant goal as well. That link-up with Jude Bellingham that we should have been seeing at Old Trafford if things might have been different. Hopefully that kicks him into gear as well uh, in club form for United. Bruno Fernandes, another one who continues to impress at international level. He needs to bring that back to Manchester as well. Yeah, Rashford was a fun one, wasn't it? Because we were in uh, Dublin uh, and we were like, we need to keep sort of check on you know, how United players are doing. And then it was at the interval, wasn't it, where we could kind of all gathered around your phone, I think it was, and uh, and checked out checked out the goal. Well, I went out for part two and went, yeah, Marcus Rashford <laughs> scored for England. I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. No one Boo. cared, did they? <laughs> no. Yeah, quite the opposite. But I think what it did just remind people is that if you give Rashford the ball in space, he's attacking at pace, he can cut in and, and finish really smartly. There was, there was, he, had a, he had a clarity of thought, didn't he, which is what we've discussed previously, where uh, you know he obviously w- w- was in two minds, really, about what he was going to do uh, with that chance when he was through on goal and, and he squares to Bruno and it's too soft. And So that, that was really uh, good to see that he kind of had one thought in mind and just go straight at it. And obviously credit to Bellingham for being able to break the line and then uh, giving the ball in, in a good bit of space. So, yeah, I guess that's... a just, just something to remind people, you know, that's that's a way to, to goal for United. Lots of international teams were playing. Did you see those Slovenia fans in our hotel in Belfast when we left on Tuesday morning? They were about to play Northern Ireland at Windsor Park. I was going to pull them over and try and talk about stadiums <laughs> in Slovenia, but got dragged away myself. We did go past Windsor Park. Very disappointing for Northern Ireland. I know that international football was a main reason why Johnny Evans didn't want to retire in the summer. He wanted to carry on playing for Northern Ireland. They're not going to be going to the Euros, which is a bit of a disappointment for them because the last um, reaching the finals in 2016 was a was a huge deal for them. And other countries have played as well. Um, Portugal have won every single game in qualifying, so that's a record for them. So Diogo Dalot, Bruno Fernandes, obviously very important players for Portugal now. And the fact that they're winning as Cristiano Ronaldo, while he's still very important... He's not getting any younger, so he's still breaking Portugal records. Though, isn't he? In... Not, not that he we're is, interested it... anymore, but yeah, no, we're, we're not. But you know, credit that he's doing it, at, even at, at international level, that he's, he's continuing to add on that huge number of appearances for his country. Surprise winners in 2016 would be very surprised if they won it in Germany next year. But a really good week for the Portuguese lads. So a positive experience then, certainly for Bruno Fernandes and Diogo Delo, but not at all for, for Victor Lindelof. Absolutely tragic situation around their, their game against Belgium, Andy. It was terrible. Two Swedish football fans, one in his 60s, one in his 70s, fatally shot, a taxi driver uh, wounded. It was a, a shocking story and, and Victor Lindelof and his partner um, spoke out about it as well. It, it's in, incredibly sad that people go and watch a football game and, and, and get killed. I can't even believe that I'm saying it like I am. So there's a, there's a lot of bad news around at the moment and that that was more bad news this, this week from, from Brussels. There's been some news from Morocco that, that Amrabat may have, um, may have picked up another injury or still been suffering from the back problem that meant that he 
he sort of delayed his start to life at, at Manchester United as well. He missed their game against Liberia. But there has been some good news on the injury front over this international break, Laurie, from a behind-closed-doors friendly, we understand. Kobe Maino, who has been out since he had that unfortunate collision uh, over in America, in Houston against Real Madrid. Um, yeah, he played in a friendly at Carrington against Barnsley uh, so Barnsley sent a pretty decent uh, team we're told um, and it was a team from United's point of view primarily of you know kids Kobe Maino still is a kid but you kind of have that idea that he's a first team footballer which he is and I think he's somebody that Eric Tenard would have really liked to have uh, available to him for these first few games and who knows maybe the pitch could have looked a little bit different not to put too much uh, pressure on the kid but he's obviously looked a good a good player <laughs> we'd be top of the league if he didn't get injured I think don't you <laughs> oh champions incoming but he, yeah apparently he was really sharp against Barnsley United won 3-0 and yeah Donny van der Beek played uh, Anthony played again so obviously he's you know working his way back to full fitness after his timeout, and uh, Tom Heaton played as well in goal. So, and it was I think Chuck Travis Binion was the manager for the game, which I think might have been a kind of a conscious choice by United because Travis had managed the uh, United Under Twenty Ones against Bolton in the uh, EFL Trophy, and they'd lost eight one, which was you know it's a it's a bad result that. So I think this was a, an opportunity for him to uh, you know just have a, have a team again and just get back into the groove of things. I spoke to Travis uh, the week before last when he oversaw the 19s in the 3 0 win against Galatasaray. So, is Romano manages so many teams? He's good. <laughs> I like his pitch side demeanour. He's very vocal to his players. Uh, he buys into the play development as a person and not just a player as well. So, but yeah, I think Laurie, Laurie's right about that. And he was also in charge when United played against Wrexham in San Diego and he spoke to some of us after the game over there in front of 32,000 or whatever it was. Not that I look out for attendances. So, <laughs> yeah, I think he's doing um, a, a decent job and a difficult job because quite often he has to field very young teams because players are sent out on loan, etc. Et so, good at the playing behind closed doors games. Some players clearly need minutes, especially in international breaks if they're no longer internationals anymore. So, good. Yeah, OK, then before we move it on to preview the match against Sheffield United for the men's team this weekend, we need to reflect on the women being knocked out of the Champions League at the second round stage against PSG, which is a hugely disappointing result for the club, considering it would have meant progressing through uh, to the group stage in the competition. Of course, it was Manchester United's first ever Champions League tie uh, for the women's team. They lost 3-1 away at PSG after drawing the first leg one all, and it's opened up a bit of a debate about the format of the tournament, Andy, hasn't it? I watched the game. I, wa- I wasn't there, unlike a decent United following who were there. Manchester United got to this stage because they didn't win the, the title last year, so it's not that dissimilar to the men's, um, where you're, you're put into a position, but you're not put into the group stage. Although if you'd finished second in the Premier League, you would go straight into the, the group stage of the Champions League. So it, di- it is different, isn't it? Because you know, if you finish second or third in the Premier League, you're straight into the group stage, whereas in the women's version, you're not. You, and, and it's unseeded in the in the first and second round as well. So not just Manchester United have gone out, but Arsenal and Wolfsburg, who were semi-finalists last year, played in front of something like 60,000 fans at the Emirates Stadium um, at that stage last year as well. Juventus, one of the most high-profile women's teams in Italy, are out as well. I don't think any of them teams going out at this stage helps the Champions League. There are a couple of factors. The group stage is much smaller than the men's. It's only 16 teams. England, who are top-seeded in the men's in terms of the coefficients, are not top-seeded in the women's game. So the most dominant teams have actually come from France, Lyon. That's why Paris finished second last year. 
But your point is right. Wolfsburg have been a majorly important team. I watched them play in front of 91,000 people at Barcelona last year. So when you're losing these big, big names, you're not really igniting interest because if Manchester United would have got through to the group stage, that would have been a really big deal. And it was frustrating watching the game. Paris did deserve to win. United were much better in the second half. Some terrible decisions went against mm. Manchester United. Leah Galton, to my goal. eyes, was scored a perfectly good goal. And I've watched it again and again. And I thought United were hard done by. And then a few other decisions as well. That said, two of the goals were pretty slack. Um, PSG within seconds of Manchester United's goal, went straight down the other end, and that really took the sting out of it. It was a big deal. It was at Parc de Prince. There was a big crowd there. What a shame that all that effort to get into position to get into the Champions League is undone in one playoff game because when it's the men's playoffs, it's normally like Olympiacos against pretty big teams. You'll get a PSV, even a Galatasaray this year. But it ain't Manchester United and Paris. And I'm not saying any of them have got a divine right to be in there, but I think that competition could be tweaked for the better. Yeah, if you want to read more about the former argument in the Women's Champions League, Charlotte Harper's got the article on The Athletic. Right, well, we're only a couple of days away from Manchester United being back in Premier League action. And Laurie, they'll just pick up where they left off with that finish against Brentford, won't they? What, like two goals in the first five minutes or something, yeah. Scott, Scott McTominay breaking into the box, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Being set up by Harry Maguire, it's exactly how it's going to go, isn't it? <laughs> Does he start? Big question, interesting question. Well, I suppose, you know, if you think of Casemiro having had that knock for Brazil and uh, travelling, you know, to, to those games, is there a thought that actually and he came off at half time didn't he against uh, Brentford so is is there is, is there a, a way that you sort of look at that and go actually Sheffield United away as well um, you know you expect it to have more of the ball so perhaps you're, you're able to put a player like McTominay in there to kind of get in amongst the you know, in the box I mean it's Man City played there didn't they uh, early in the season and, and Sheffield United gave them a, a good game and actually it was only at the end when they'd equalised Sheffield United that City then thought right, we actually need to get bodies in the box here and, and Rodri took the initiative and, and basically scored the winner and um, it was him wasn't it <laughs> that scored and, uh, and, and so that kind of idea of you know, just get more players up and get more players in the back. I don't know, maybe, maybe that's the thought for Ten Hag. But yeah, hopefully United can harness the momentum of, of that, you know, fabulous um, finish to the game against Brentford. I mean, yeah, as we touched on after the game straight away, just the noise was incredible. And I know the, the international break perhaps then comes at a bad time, but probably a, a, a moment to pause for everybody and just sort of then come back and, and, and renew their um, their attempts to get United back up the table. I mean, they, ha- they have to win, don't they, against Sheffield United? It's, it's again, a, a not non-negotiable on that score. But it will be interesting to see what team Ten Hag puts out because he made so many changes that second half against Brentford. Where where does he now land You know, with, with what his best team is? I think Johnny Evans, the Belfast Baresi and Harry Maguire going back to his former club might be a little bit miffed if they're not playing, but clearly I wouldn't expect them to to be uh, the main two central defenders must win you're totally right Laurie Sheffield United have not won a game so far this season uh, they've drawn one match the goal scoring record is almost as bad as Manchester United's they've conceded far more goals than the rest 22 goals so that's that's 10 more than Manchester United it's pretty hard to concede that many goals they did I, concede 8 in one game though yeah you know I didn't yeah. like that I didn't like that when, when I saw that I just thought my respect for Newcastle United is going down, not up, and that's probably more about the, the ownership. I just 
I've got a respect for Sheffield United as a as a, a proper football club. Although even then, as, as I'm saying that, I know they've had massive ownership issues themselves. Sheffield is a great city to go to to watch Manchester United. We really miss Sheffield Wednesday. It's a great city to go to. I spent three brilliant years there at university. Fantastic. Nothing to do with studying, by the it's way. A it's a top just, city just a great place. and it's very close to Manchester and it's a big city. It's a football city. I'd love Sheffield Wednesday back up there. I like Sheffield United, Bramall Lane's a proper English football ground to go to. Good away Lots section as well. On. Yeah, it's a top top away section. It's really steep and I'm not so sure about the 8pm on a Saturday night kickoff. Not because I'm a rugby fan and it might clash with that, but because one of my mates said to me after Burnley, it took me until Tuesday to recover from that Saturday night out in, <laughs> in Burnley. It is a must win. Copenhagen on Tuesday is a must win as well. And Manchester City following that absolutely is a must win. What a week. What a week. Do you know what you just reminded me there, Andy, in terms of the, the stadium? I was in the away section when Ronaldo had that miss. You know, <laughs> it was absolute open goal, uh, three yards. I think United still won the game, didn't they? 2-1. I think, did Ever do something in it? But uh, yeah, just when you mentioned that, just flashed before my eyes like, wow, that was probably the worst miss I've ever seen. It's a really steep stand uh, above the what was a formerly standing section so I first went there in 1990 FA Cup 6 round I had a standing ticket the view was terrible you had these big concrete bollards in front of you but the seats are an absolute luxury you mentioned that Man City game earlier on I watched a bit of that I thought go on you're telling me there's a chance here Sheffield United go on and City did what City do so I consciously a few weeks ago thought I'm just going to completely ignore Manchester City and since I've done that they've lost lost both games so this is a tactic that's working. Yeah, they've lost three out of four, City, haven't they? Um, hopefully they don't find form before the derby, or even worse, find form in the derby, which um, would be particularly problematic. We didn't mention about McTominay either, Laurie, did we? Scotland have qualified for Euro 2004, and he's had as big a hand as anyone in doing that. And maybe he should be on set pieces as well after that free kick that's disallowed. He seems to be able to do everything at the minute. Well, talking about goals that shouldn't be ruled out for, for minor nudges, I mean, I, I think... It, I, UEFA seem to change their mind on why that goal, the free kick. So it's like, Bizarre, isn't it? yeah, it's, it's from near the corner flag in McTominay. I mean, I didn't know. I don't think. Have you ever seen McTominay take a free kick? Not not one to not like shoot that, for goal, no. right? <laughs> I mean, it's a great effort. He did say that he'd been watching the Beckham documentary, yeah. but I didn't think it'd like quite go that well. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think. It's that osmosis. Move it like McTominay. He, uh, yeah, and then obviously to get it ruled out, and it would have put them one 0 up, and could it have changed the result ultimately? I know Spain won two 0 but um, and and that would that would have been a really nice moment for him, you know, just to cap- capitalise a total. I mean, he obviously still celebrated it, and maybe you can take some uh, pride in that. But it's it's frustrating that in this world of VAR, you kind of get these issues where goals that are, uh, no one no one care, no one wants that ruled out not even the spanish players want that ruled out because what's the point you just kill joys but nevertheless scotland qualifying hopefully that means that he's um you know comes back in with that kind of spiky personality that he's got you know clearly he's got the bit between his teeth at the moment I guess we're speculating a little bit considering we don't know exactly who's going to be available for Eric Ten Hag this weekend but what Scott McTominay's goals did do, Andy, at the end of the Brentford game, they maybe ease some of the selection dilemmas that the manager had. I mean, you've mentioned Maguire and Evans maybe starting this game after their performance in that match. We talked about Casemiro going at half, off at half-time and the finish to the match that McTominay had. Marcus Rashford's been brought off three games in a row early. There's question marks over Andre Onana in goal after yet another mistake against Brentford as well. It's going to be an interesting team sheet at Sheffield United, isn't it? I wouldn't have any issue whatsoever with Scott Van Basten starting in that bear pit of Bramall Lane on Saturday night. I think he's 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 done enough 
and I think he he might be suited to to that type of game. It's going to be a very difficult game where Sheffield United are going to try try and drag Manchester United down, um, try and defend, and you mentioned the different areas around the pitch where there's selection issues. As I speak now, I don't know who is available or who is not available. No, there is that, yeah. Because like Regulon, I think, was the closest to being back maybe, so that perhaps changes things a little bit. Yeah, we did have we did get a little nod on that a few weeks ago, but we weren't sure um, when when he was going to be back. I mean, please get one left-back back. That is that is the one real problem area for Manchester United is is the, the left-back position. And just to get closer to Eric Ten Hag, being able to be close to choosing his idealised 11 but I suspect that has also changed because of the poor form of some players I'm not sure he'll know what his idealised 11 is at the minute Laurie will he? I mean he probably has an idea in his mind if everyone's fit and actually Quite an full if. form yeah, yeah I know they're two huge ifs yeah as Andy's touched on I think the left back thing as long as he can get Amrabat into midfield if Amrabat's fit another if um, yeah mm. Regulon we're hoping that Regulon's going to be fit I think uh, Luke Shaw still you know I think November you're looking at for his return to be honest so um, a little bit of hesitation on whether you know when he'll be back really goalkeeper I don't think so I think he has to, he has to stick with Onana doesn't he uh, he played in the against Senegal in a friendly during this international break so that's that's another issue you know to kind of just have a, a thought on ahead of um, AFCON maybe later in the year uh, well next year um, trying to think of the other ones I mean Garnacho does he I, mean, I think Rashford doing what he did for England as, as you touched on if there's no international break would he have taken that huge decision to, to take Rashford out of, the, out of the starting lineup after having taken him off you know, early in three games when United needed to do something in those games uh, I think maybe that's given him food for thought uh, because Garnacho has obviously come on and, and shown a spark but then again when Garnacho starts does it actually follow through does he deserve the same level of performance does Anthony come back into the starting lineup? Um I mean that's the one where he was basically a guarantee on the right wasn't he and, and then he sort of had to shuffle around with Mason Mount and Bruno Fernandes at different moments so uh, yeah he's got lots of sort of debates I suppose over different positions I think maybe maybe Casemiro's the big one you know actually I, I wouldn't be surprised if he doesn't start Casemiro and he's the only one who has he's the only outfield player who's started every single game so far this season so that would okay. be significant and I, and I do think with with the centre backs. I mean, you said you you know Maguire and Evans. You know, you'd be surprised, but I suppose it's just whether Rafael Varane's fit. I mean, maybe Lindelof. You know, you'd have a debate there as well. But um, I, you know, Maguire and and Evans actually sort of defensively did pretty well against Brentford. Um, and you know, Sheffield United. You kind of thinking they're not going to have to defend. Yeah, they can kind of push up a bit, and it's not going to be like they're chasing him behind too much. So I don't it's like know. Burnley. It's like Burnley a few weeks ago yeah. on a Saturday night. Johnny Evans was man of the match. <laughs> yeah, that assist for that goal and his own goal, which he got disallowed. Johnny record. comes alive on a Saturday night. He'll go there, he'll get the winner, and he'll go out and gate crasher in Sheffield if it didn't close down 15 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> yeah, Andy, it shut down in 2006. It burnt down, which probably shows you just how in touch you are with the youth culture in Northern England right about now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it for Talk of the Devils. I hope you enjoyed that. It was good to be back. Thank you again to everyone who came to the show. Thank you to everyone who's listened today. Thank you to Andy. Thank you to Laurie. And we'll see you on the next one. Take care. Bye bye. The Athletic.